to live vertically in this horizontal world, one of the things required is hearing from God all the time. It's required that, that we have a soft, clean heart. Otherwise, the way you handle traffic is not going to be vertical. Otherwise, the way you handle stress in your life or when the IRS audits your taxes, you're going to handle that very horizontally unless you've got a soft, clean heart that hears from God every day. Do you understand? You see, if you're just hearing from God on Sundays, that should not be enough. That should not be enough. The Bible says today, if you will hear his voice and not harden your hearts. And that's what we've been looking at. You know, we live in a world where many turn away. Many maybe started believing in Jesus, but sort of stopped. And they don't, they don't believe in a Jesus and a God who can transform reality. And, and some people have lost faith, but still claim faith. And that might, that might be you this morning. And you are, me and Chuck talk sometimes, we talk about functional atheism. Have you ever heard that term before? And it's, it's something that somebody who, they, they say with their mouth that they believe in a mighty God who has the power to shape reality in his hand, in his voice, in his word. We say we believe that, but our actions show otherwise. There are many who claim to believe in God, who claim to follow Jesus, but are functional atheists. How do you know? Well, because they handle traffic like an atheist would. They handle the line at the DMV like an atheist would. They go to work and God is nowhere in their thoughts. They go to, they go to you know, some event or something. Some, they just kind of live their lives and God is not present. God is not central. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about these discussions of Jesus should be a part of our every moment. Every moment is an opportunity to please God. Every moment is an opportunity to hear from God. Every moment is an opportunity to be close to God, to worship God. Every moment. To live every moment like he's a part of your life. That's what we're trying to talk about. That's vertical living in a horizontal world. So look with me in the book of Hebrews chapter 3. Would you do that? Hebrews is towards the end of your Bible. Okay, Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. And Hebrews 3 is very, very important. The book of Hebrews is very important. You know, Hebrews was written to Jewish people. And it was written quite like, you know, much of the New Testament was written to believers. But even in the midst of these believers, there's people that Jesus would call them wheat and tares. Not terrors, but tares. T-A-R-E-S. Do you remember that word, tares? That means they're, they're weeds, but they look just like wheat. And I, would, I believe that in every church we have wheat and we have tares. We have people that are legit, have a real, solid, close faith with God. And then we have people that look like they have that. But really are empty. 
They're functional atheists. They say they have it, but they really don't. Hebrews is written to people, and he's, he's, the author of Hebrews is actually saying to them, this has to change. See, what is happening is these Hebrews, after years and years of following Jesus, have gotten hurt. They've had property seized. They've had things taken away. They faced some persecution. And they've begun to get into this new level of persecution. And many of them are discouraged. Many of them are saddened. Many of them are losing heart and losing faith. And so he's writing to these Hebrews and he's saying, listen, this is who Jesus is. Many of these Hebrews were facing conflict. They're facing trials and persecution. And so what do they do? They revert back to Judaism. They take steps back. They devalue the person and work of Jesus. And that's where we pick up in chapter 3 of Hebrews. See, he's writing in Hebrews and he's saying Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. Can you imagine this? A Jewish person who reveres Moses. And the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the guy who built Judaism. And Jesus is saying, God is saying through the author of Hebrews that Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. His promised land is better. Everything, Moses, Israel, the promised land, that was all a picture of something that was going to be better through Jesus. And so look with me in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. So look with me in verse 8. Okay, the author is writing and he's saying to these people, he's referring back to something that happened in Exodus chapter 17. He's referring back to Psalm 95, which two weeks ago we looked at. And the author of Hebrews is talking to these, these people who are of Jewish background, but have either actually followed Jesus or claimed to follow Jesus. They're either wheat or they're tares. And he's saying to them, therefore, in verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. They saw my works for 40 years. And therefore, I was provoked with that generation and I said that they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
an amazing study is to go through Sabbath. To go through this concept of rest. It's a powerful theme in Scripture. This idea of Sabbath. And, and God is saying, they will not enter my rest. There were many people in, the, in Israel that saw the miracles. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw God do impossible things. They saw a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. And they followed this. And it was amazing. But they still were like, eh, uh, I, don't, I don't know. And when, when it came time to obey, they backed away. When it came the time of testing, they failed to test. And God swore in his wrath, they will never enter my place of rest. Now what that's talking about is the promised land. They did not enter the promised land. That's a picture for you and I. This is a picture the author of Hebrews is writing to people. He's saying that what happened there is an example of what's happening now. You've got a better Moses who's done better miracles, and he's communicated a better gospel, a better truth, established a better people, and he's got a better promised land. And the same choice is available to you and I today. Today, if we will hear his voice and not harden our hearts as they did back then. Because this promised land we're talking about has eternal implications eternal consequences now this is the word of god i love verse 13 here well let's let's go back to 12 first take care he's warning his brothers and sisters he says take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart now that's weird to me isn't that weird to you? Why would he be so harsh with somebody who's unbelieving? What's the big deal to not believe? I, I, I think there's a lot of people who struggle with this. Why is God so mad when we don't believe him? You know, and C.H. Spurgeon, he, he, he's a very famous preacher throughout history. He said, unbelief is calling God a liar. What could be worse than that is what he says. Unbelief is to call God a liar. That's a big deal. So when we don't say that what he says is true, when we don't adhere to that, when we don't follow that and believe that, we are saying, God, you're a liar, and I don't have to listen to you. I could only imagine what the angels in God's presence think of something like that. So here's that. He, he calls it an evil, unbelieving heart. So here's kind of a progression, all right? You have this in your, in your notes if you've got those with you. There's a progression that takes place. And it starts with devaluing Jesus. Write that down. The first thing is devaluing Jesus. The next progression in that is, is you develop a hard heart. Your heart becomes hardened because Jesus is worth less to you. And then that leads to sin. When Jesus is worth less, other things are worth more, your heart becomes hard, and you enter into sin. And, and I mean more than just like, oops, I sinned. It's more of a sinful pattern that takes root in your heart, and it develops, and it grows. It's cultivated like roots tear up my back patio right now. I was just looking at that yesterday. Like the crack has grown by an inch. 
It's because it, it, it just takes root and it grows and destroys. So this is what, what happens. And then the next progression from that pattern of sin is unbelief. And this is the state that I know people and I know you know people where they've, they've come. I've got friends of mine that, that just don't believe. They've literally turned away from the faith. And so I asked them, or I asked one of them actually, which came first, the unbelief or the sin? Because sin contributes to unbelief. When we devalue Jesus, and then verse 13, it says the deceitfulness of sin. What's the deceitfulness of sin? The deceitfulness of sin is saying other things are worth more than Jesus. Other things are more valuable, more pleasurable, more wonderful than Jesus. That's the deceitfulness of sin. When we devalue Jesus and we say, oh, this, this is better than him, or this way is better than his way, when we begin to, and, and guys, brothers, sisters, we, we do this all the time, don't we? We have his way that we know is, is true and right, but honestly, my own way seems pretty good right now. Have you ever been there? Of course you have. I have too. And when you're in that moment, Jesus' way, his, his life, his person seems less important than this. Winning this argument, getting that parking space, doing this, closing this deal, whatever it might be. Devaluing Jesus is always the temptation. It always is the temptation. You know what? If, if we really saw Jesus as more valuable than anything, as more pleasurable than anything, sin would never be an issue. There'd be no temptation for that. Some of you, I could, I could take some, uh, some illegal drugs. I, I, maybe I have some heroin right here in my hands. And I could come and just, just walk through here and say, hey, would you like some heroin? And you would, say to your, you would say, absolutely not. I have no desire for that. But there's others that are here that have been through that, that have tasted that, that have experienced that. And, and it does have a pull. And it does have an attraction. And the point is, when you are close to Jesus... The things of this world, the things that are sinful, the things that are destructive, the, more, the higher value you have on Jesus, the more those things just seem lame and worthless. The higher worth Jesus has in your life, the lesser worth those other things have. Do you understand? So what do we do with football? You know, like, I love football. What's, what's that about? I, I love sports. I love basketball. I love I love doing things. You know, I, I love having fun. I love movies. Here's, here's what I'm saying. Is when those things become more attractive than Jesus, that is the dangerous progression. That has begun. Here's the thing. If you're doing all of these different activities, whatever it might be, you're on the swimming team, or you're on the golf team, or 
you're working and you love your job and everything's great. If you are doing that and God is nowhere part of that, that is a dangerous place to be. That's functional atheism. You see, whatever it is in your heart, if God is not the reason and the source and the highest pleasure, the highest glory, the highest worth, you're missing the point and you're in dangerous territory. That's what he starts out saying. Devaluing Jesus is the first step. That's why he spends the first three chapters of Hebrews and he says, Jesus is better. He's better. He's better. Whatever you can throw at me, Jesus is better. Whatever you're tempted by, Jesus is better. And if you actually believe that, that'll help you live a vertical life where, where you're thinking of him and you're, he's part of your life. He's part of everything you're doing. He's more than part. I hate that word. He's the center of everything you're doing. Does that make sense? So the first thing is that progression. Devaluing Jesus leads to a hard heart, which leads to sin, which leads to unbelief. Now, the next thing I, I want to bring up is unbelief is a powerful word. And some of you might be sitting here or you might be listening and you're thinking, I, do, I do I have unbelief? I doubt sometimes. What do I, what do, I do with that? Now, I want to just tell you, doubt and unbelief are two separate things. Did you know that? Doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Doubt is an opportunity for faith or for sin. I'm going to say that again. If you have doubt in your life, which I believe we all do, or at least those of us who ask honest questions do, Doubt comes in sometimes. Doubt is an attack. Doubt is a temptation. Doubt is an opportunity for faith or for sin. What we do with doubt matters. Here's what I mean. In Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we see the Great Commission where Jesus, it, it says in verse 16, that his disciples met Jesus on a mountain where he had told them to go. And when they saw him, they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Isn't that amazing? Like Jesus is, is being transported up to heaven, okay? He's, he's, this is his ascension story. And they see Jesus, there he is. We're on the same mountain where he told us to come, and there he is. And some of them worshipped, and some of them doubted. It's in the Bible. 28:17 of Matthew. And Jesus says to both groups, he says, "All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go to all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and then of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And be sure of this, I will be with you to the very end." He gives the command to the worshipers and the doubters. You see, the, the next little thing in there is doubt plus obedience equals confidence. Write that in there, will you? Doubt plus obedience equals confidence. A guy like Thomas, who said, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't believe it. If Jesus rose again, I, unless I actually get to 
a horrible thought, like to stick my finger in the hole in his hand where they nailed the, 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 the nails. Unless I can see it and touch it, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus appears to him. In Jesus' grace, he appears to this doubter. And he was forever transformed. He left and he obeyed. And we see a legacy of obedience in Thomas's life. Doubt plus obedience leads to confidence. I've seen this in my life. Did you know that? There have been times where I've struggled. I've, I've been hurt. Or things haven't gone my way. And doubt creeps in. You know what doubt is? It's a temptation. You can, you can give in to that. You can, you can go with that. Or you can say, you know what, I'm going to follow and obey. I also think doubt can be a spiritual attack. Did you know that? There have been a lot of times in my life where I'm driving in my car and I just have doubt, I have fear, I have all of these things. Even, uh, you know, doubting God's existence or doubting that he's got a plan or doubting that he's leading and guiding me in my life and my situation right now. And in those moments, I'm discouraged, depressed. And you know what I do? I do what Jesus did in the wilderness. I quote scripture. I pray out loud. I'll sing a song. And you know what happens immediately as I start to do that? Boom! It's like the, the doubt is gone. Isn't that weird? Does that ever happen to you? Am I the only one? Am I a weirdo? We all knew I was a wacko, but, but I, am I a weirdo? Yeah, I mean, maybe I am weird, but honestly, that's something that happens in my life. And I pray out loud, and I, I claim the word of God, and I say the word of God out loud, and I, I sing songs in my car. If you pull up alongside me at a stoplight, you're likely to see me singing. And, and that's spiritual warfare. And as soon as I hold on to the promises, as soon as I claim the promises, as soon as I pray the promises, boom, it's cleared up. Isn't that weird? That happens. Doubt plus obedience equals confidence. But the flip side of that is doubt plus sin equals unbelief. It might be that you're listening and, and, and doubt has creeped into your life. And in the doubt, you're discouraged and you give up. And you just begin to do things your way. See, doubt is a temptation to devalue Jesus. And when we buy that, when we buy that other things are better, other things are truer, that's, that's sin. And, and it's not far from there to actual patterns of destructive sin. And then from there, unbelief. It actually goes from unbelief. You know, I actually, I, I know people who are bitter against God and bitter at the church. And they followed this pattern and this has happened to them. And in their unbelief, they've become so hard that they're bitter. It's a downward spiral that leads to hatred. So here's the word of God. Look with me in verse 14. This is important stuff. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For, uh, verse 14. 
For we have come to share in Christ if. This is an if-then clause, right? Any language teachers out there? Any, you know, like English literature or any, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like if-then clause means if this is true, then this happens. If this is not true, then this doesn't happen. Follow with me here. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we hold firm our original confidence firm to the end, we have shared in Christ. Do you understand? See, our churches are full of people who've had little flashes of emotional experiences. Did you know that? I prayed a prayer in third grade. And, and I had an emotional encounter in third grade or, or, or whatever it was. I don't know why I always say third grade. For me, it was earlier than that. But, but back then, I had an emotional experience, and I'm, I'm just kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. But really, we're like functional atheists. And we're struggling. And he's talking about if we hold on firm to the end. What that means is this, true faith. There's true faith, and there's counterfeit faith. Do you understand that? Now, I bet you if I were to interview all of you one-on-one, -on -one, I don't think there's anybody that would sit here and say, you know what, I've got counterfeit faith. Maybe you would. But most of us, I've got genuine faith. But genuine faith has fruit. Genuine faith perseveres. If you have real faith, it increases the value of Jesus in your life. Jesus is worth more and more as the days go by. That's genuine faith. If you have genuine faith, your heart is soft. And God is a part of your life. Not just on Sunday mornings, but on Thursday afternoons. He's a part of your life as you're watching Monday night football. He's a part of your life when you're paying your bills, when you're doing your taxes, when you're planning for your future investments or whatever you're doing. He's a part of your life when you're in, this, in the shower. Ever-increasing value of Jesus. That's part of genuine faith. Another component is you're soft. You hear him. You obey him. You're frequently moved by God, by his word, by his spirit. You can be moved. And it doesn't have to do with who, who the one speaking is. You can actually hear from God on your own. That's genuine faith. You hear from God in the car. You're, you're spending time with God all of the time. He is the center of your life. And true faith endures in community. Can I bring out something? Hebrews is written to a community. It's not written to one isolated person. We read it as capitalists in our American society. We read it as individuals. This is written to groups. One another is a powerful word that we read here. Take care, brothers and sisters, verse 12. Lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Look with me in verse 13. 
every day. It says exhort one another every day. That's the next thing in your outline. The solution is to exhort one another daily. Exhort one another daily. What does that word exhort mean? That's a big Christian word. Okay, it's a word we throw around, but really exhort means to encourage, to lift up, to warn, warn. It also means to just be real and honest, and, and it means to, to build you up, to help you take the next step. That's exhortation. It's all about growing. It's all about recalibrating. Exhort one another. One another. What does that mean? What does that word one another mean? We, we use this all the time, and honestly, we see this all through Hebrews. We see it all through Scripture. One another. Love one another. Be kind to one another. Have compassion on one another. What does that word one another mean? Well, he's writing to a, a community of people. Remember that. And he says one another, meaning there's a give and to receive to it. I exhort you. You exhort me. We exhort one another. I know that makes sense to y'all, but I just had to spell that out. That, that to me is powerful. That one another means there's a give and a receiving to it. And why does it say daily? Daily. Exhort one another daily. Are we doing that? Exhort one another daily. Why? Because we're being lied to every day. You and I, every time we turn on the TV, the radio, even in our own subconscious, even in our own conscious, you know, our, our inner dialogue, I mean our inner monologue, <laughs> we're, we're being lied to. Has this ever happened to you where you talk to somebody and you, you know, you get kind of your, your, what you wanted to say, you change gears halfway through and so they're like, okay, see you later. And you're like, okay, take luck. And you're like, oh man, I meant to say good luck, but then I decided to say take care and then I just kind of converged them into take luck. Have you ever had that happen? No? Yeah? And then you walk away if you're like me, you've got that inner monologue going on. You're like, I'm such an idiot. Oh, man, what did I do? Yeah. You ever done that? Oh, man, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. And You just beat yourself up. We do that all the time. You know, when my daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, that was a hard, hard day. We're still, we're still getting through that. But I remember in my heart, my immediate thought, and this is just me being super honest, this is my fault. This is God judging me because I left India. And in my heart, I, I knew that my wife and I prayed for months and we worked together with our team and we knew God had called us back from India, but I still felt guilty. And that was exactly where my mind went, is God is punishing me because I, I, I left India. What about you? I, I think we lie to ourselves all the time, don't we? We're being lied to every day. Young people, high school students, you're being lied to all day long. 
all the time. We're being lied to. And he says, exhort one another every day. Why? Because we're being lied to every single day. And we live in a church culture in the U.S., in the Western world. We live in a church culture where we only hear truth maybe once a week. That's not enough. We maybe only hear truth individually. That's not enough. Do you know, we need one another. In Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6, and Hebrews 10, there are severe warnings towards people who seem like they believe but really don't believe. Severe warnings. And, and he's saying, I'm warning you guys, if you can treat Jesus like this, you're not saved, is essentially what he's saying. If you can say that your faith is this, but practice this, that's not genuine faith. It's not going to save you. You're still in your sin, and you're still in trouble. Chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 10. And in each of those chapters, in that same context as the warning, are the words, one another. Help one another, love one another, exhort one another, meet with one another. Do not forsake the meeting together. That's in the same context as him saying, if you're not real, you're in trouble. But we have one another. God has given us one another so that we could help one another. That's what it's supposed to be. Daily, not weekly. Daily, it's in the Bible. I just read it. We fall short of that, don't we? Man, I'm going a long time. I need to shut this down. I have so much to say about this. This is so powerful. In India, about 10 years ago, something significant took place in one of the darkest regions on earth. It's called Bihar, India. That's where Nicole and I went. We went to work with Muslims in Bihar, India years ago. This was probably 15 years ago. There, nothing had really ever taken root in Bihar, India. And God used a few different organizations in, in, in just one of those things where his spirit worked in powerful ways and things just aligned. And what ended up happening, it's called the Bhojpuri Movement. Okay, you could Google that. B-H-O-J is how it gets started. Bhojpuri Movement. And what happened was people started coming to Jesus in droves, started turning from their sin and turning to God in droves. And the statistics are crazy. On the low end, 200,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. On the high end, 2 million people gave their lives to Jesus. And what was happening is one disciple was making another disciple, and this guy was making another disciple. They weren't making disciples. They were making disciple makers. Are you with me? And it just went crazy. And still to this day, there are churches, and it's just a changed area. The Bhojpuri movement. And if you study this, if, if you look at this, one of the things that you'll see is in every place where God's Spirit did impossible things, in one of the darkest regions on earth, one another. Every day. They were meeting together every day. They were praying together every day. They were fasting together every day. They were doing this every day, and they had this community. Does that sound a little bit like Acts, the first few chapters? That's what was going on. And we saw Acts results in the Bojpuri. I don't know why I said we. I wasn't there. 
but we as a church, we saw God do impossible things, and it was that idea of they were, they were taking this seriously. They were meeting together one, every day, and they were talking and praying for one another. They were loving one another. They were forgiving one another. They were there for one another. They exhorted one another. And the whole side of the state was transformed. But what gets in our way? Well, time, really, right? I don't have time. We have life groups at our church. In fact, uh, on the back of your page here, we, we went ahead and just listed. We have five different life groups that are meeting at five different places and locations. Um, five different times. And we actually have a list of people because we want, if you know somebody and you, you feel like, oh, I, I connect with them, so I'm going to go to their life group. We actually have a life group that's about to begin as well that I didn't put on here because we have a few more details to iron out. But we, we put that on there because we want you to be a part of it. There's a contact email. If you're interested, sign up. Just, just send an email and we'll tell you where and when and how to get involved. But life group, so important. Why? Because what happens in between Sundays is far more important than what happens right here, right now. Did you know that? In fact, the whole reason we meet Sunday mornings is so that we can live well the rest of the week. So that we can be in community, serving Jesus the rest of the week. So that we can be encouraged in Jesus the rest of the week. Are you with me? So that's, we, we have small groups, they're in your bulletin. We have Bible studies that you could be a part of. And the idea is so that you don't do life alone. Now one of the biggest reasons why people don't get involved in these small groups or in life groups is because time. And I'm going to get really, really real with you guys here. What are you saying when you say, I don't have time for that? What does that really mean? Is this too harsh? Another way of saying I don't have time for that is I have more important things to do. It's not worth enough. You see, every time we say yes to something, we're saying no to other things. We all have the same amount of time. Did you know that? We all have 24 hours in the day. And that's a gift from the Lord, and we get to allocate that as he sees fit. But a lot of times we, we do it our way, don't we? These are my priorities. This is what I'm going to do. Sports. My kids will be late to church, but we will be on time for sports practice. Boy, does that hit home. I'm preaching to me too, you guys. I hope you know that. Here's the thing. We make time for what we value. And here's a command in scripture. It's a warning actually. To exhort one another every day. Why? Because we're being lied to every day. To be involved in a community every day. To be faithful every day. Today, if we will hear his voice and not harden our hearts. Every day. While it is still called today. We have an opportunity every day. But our lives get so full of things that we, our practice shows are more valuable than Jesus. I, 
I hope this is hitting you as hard as it's hitting me. The question is, do you have real faith or is it false faith? Does Jesus have the value in your life that he deserves? That's why we have these small groups. That's why we have life groups. I, I, I knew this couple years ago that Jeff and Nancy were new to our church. And they had been there for a couple weeks. And they had gone to one life group one time. And then on a Monday night, it was the night that they had their life group. On a Monday night just before life group, Jeff said, you know what, I'm going to go take my motorcycle just out for a drive. And so Jeff went just for a drive. And, and it was a, a beautiful little area he was driving. He was not going fast, maybe 35, 40 miles an hour. And his, something happened with his motorcycle. I don't know exactly what happened, but he crashed his motorcycle and was killed instantly. Boom, just like that. And Nancy heard about this and was broken. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know what to do. She had only been to her life group maybe once, maybe twice. Her life group that met on Monday nights heard about what had happened. And they just went over to her house. They were new to the area. But they invaded her space in a loving way, in a respectful way. They were there for her in, an, in a powerful way. It was a one another sort of moment. Nancy, to this day, that was, that was a good 12 years ago. To this day, she's been forever impacted by the love of that life group. Even though she had gone once or twice, they loved her like family. And they were there for her in a powerful way in a, in a difficult moment. Now she has gone back to school. She became a nurse. She got remarried. Her life is on track. She loves Jesus. And she's still in contact with Nicole and I. But this was something that happened because there was a one another sort of community. There was a, a group of people that were going to help her and love her through one of the darkest and most difficult times in her life. And, and that's what we're trying to be as a church here at Cross Point. Did you know that? That's what we want to do. We want to be there for one another. We want to exhort one another every day. While it is still called today. Today, if you will hear his voice and not harden your heart.